Okay, it's just almost seven. Thanks everybody for coming. It's always nice to have people here. I really appreciate this. I mean, I know we're live streaming it and we'll have it recorded. A lot of, most probably most people catch it that way, but it is, I really appreciate you who come out on Wednesday night. So I am not up here by myself because I, I always feel, makes me feel awkward. So thank you so very much. And so let us begin our night in prayer. We'll open with an Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So as we're kind of um, building this historical platform for the core of Catholic faith, and, and the, the key understanding I want us to all have is that the Catholic faith is extremely ancient. It, it goes back into the deepest roots of uh, the human experience, although as it goes through time, mankind learns and understands more and more about God. Man is able to incorporate greater understanding until Jesus comes, and then Jesus is the perfect revelation of God, and Jesus forms that understanding. That's how we know who God is, just always by looking at Jesus. But we talked a little bit about the uh, the, the um, very ancient temple, the, the, the 10,000 BC, uh, so it was about 12,000 years ago in uh, southern Turkey, called the Gobleki Tepe, and how that is a representation of the Garden of Eden. And so the Garden of Eden story that we have in the scriptures really is probably something like something very similar to what their liturgy was, how they recounted the Garden of Eden story the fall of man, the promise of a redeemer. Um, that is uh, what we think is likely how they worshiped there. We do know that there were no idols in the temple. Um, they worship God as spirit. And that understanding of God continued through many uh, cultures, but even, even into the uh, North American, uh, Native American cultures, that they understood God as spirit and not as idols. So here's the question. Where do idols come from? I think someone asked me that last week and I was going to do a special class, but it really does relate to what we're going to talk about today. We're, we're moving forward a little bit in history. We're about 2000 BC now. We're going to talk about Abraham and the patriarchs. And the, one of the things to understand is, is that Abraham comes from an, uh, an area called Akkad. And Akkad is a, um, it, was, it, was a um, it was a country, it was uh, our tribal areas, it was bordered there along the Euphrates River. And we have several smaller versions of the Gebleki Tepe. So small, many of these smaller uh, temple-like structures, which are representations of the Garden of Eden, all along the Euphrates River. So what we saw in the Gebleki Tepe is, is very uh, much related to the ancient religions of the Akkadians, from which Abraham and his family come. And as the Akkadians grew 
in, in strength and power, they began to spread out and they began to exert a great deal of influence in Sumer. We know about Sumer. Sumer was uh, uh, an area that was famous for um, some of the earliest writing in, of, in cuneiform, which looks like little triangles. In fact, the word cuneiform means border decoration because <laughs> the archaeologist who first discovered it, you had, it would have this, this image of a king or something, and it'd have all these little triangles all around the outside edges, and they thought it was just decorative, but actually it's writing. It was a very early form of writing. But the ancient Akkadians also had some very early forms of writing as well, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the stuff we learned from those, uh, from those ancient texts. <clears throat> so, as Abraham and his family moved down towards Sumer, they discovered something different in the culture. And this difference was idolatry. Why were there idols? Before there were legal documents, you know, before you could have a deed to a piece of property and go file it at the courthouse like we do today. So you own a piece of property, you own it because your father and your grandfather all lived on this property and it passes down from, you know, from one generation to another. And how do you prove this is your piece of property? So the ancients, in order to establish deeds to property, they would create effigies, statues of their ancestors. So if I were a, you know, if I were a landowner in ancient Sumer and I wanted to pass property down to my son, I'd have this statue made of me and my image would be tied to this piece of property and I'd pass it down to my son. And then my son, who would maybe expand that property, have an image made of him, and he'd pass that down. And so these were actually images of ancestors. And there was an element of ancestral worship, which we've seen, you know, not only in the Middle East, but into the Far East. But the key element here is, is that these idols gave you title to property. Now we see the same thing in, in North America among some of the Native American tribes where you would have, they would create totems, right? And they would plant in the property a totem that would have these effigies or these images of their ancestors or the spirits of their ancestors. So sometimes rather than something that would look like a, a person, it would look like an animal because in, in Native American culture, a lot of times people were associated with spirits of certain animals that they considered their guardians. And these, these totems became claim to property. So idolatry really grows out of the desire to possess land, the desire to possess property. It's a title, it's a deed to something that was given to you by your ancestors. Now, it's interesting, in one of the patriarchal stories that we're not going to go into a great deal, um, there's a man named Laban, and he had 
a couple of daughters, Leah and Rachel, and um, anyway, Jacob marries both of them. That's a long, that's a whole other story in and of itself. And then they leave Laban's territory, and they're going to go back to Canaan, where Jacob is from. And Laban chases them. He's after them. He wants to kill them because he accuses them of stealing his household idols. What's the big deal about the household idols? They're the deeds to his property. He can't prove that the property is his without possession of those idols. And of course, as the story goes, Rachel, the beautiful daughter, she stole the idols. She hid them under her, under her camel saddle and Laban did not find them and, um, and went back. But that was what the, that's what the issue was. She had the idols and the idols connected him to his property. So these idols eventually became objects of worship. There's, again, there's an element of ancestral worship, but then there's a much broader element beyond ancestral worship and eventually becomes, you know, God and goddess worship and things like that. And if you ever wondered how these ancient priests, and you see how much trouble I have trying to get people to come to church on Sunday. So how do these ancient priests get people to worship these images of wood and stone? I mean, somebody made this and then they sell it to the priest and they come worship it. How do you get people to do that? Well, the ancient priests, ancient pagan priests had a solution to that problem and that is temple prostitution. So it wasn't that people were so interested in worshiping the idol, it was the fringe benefits of worship that they were after. And so this idolatry from the very beginning wraps itself into possessions, the collection of wealth and property and lust. So that's what idolatry is as its core. And when we think about it, isn't that what draw, is always drawing society away from God? The desire for worldly possessions, property, power, lust. These are the things that draw people away from God. Now, I go this into all this detail because at the core of the story that we're going to tell today, Abraham, when he and his father, Terah, move to Sumer, Terah's a big man about town. He's a Sumerian, he's, he's an Akkadian prince. And he wants to, you know, he wants to be respected by his new neighbors. And he begins to collect and worship idols. Now, and this is not in the scriptures, by the way, this is not in the Bible. This comes from, uh, this ancient story comes from one of the Dead Sea Scrolls called the, the Book of Jubilees. And Abraham has this argument with his father. Abraham is 28 years old, and he has this argument with his father. And he says, um, we need to stop seeking, going at, stop being led astray after graven images and after pollution. And so eventually what happens is that Abraham... Um, and his nephew Lot decide to burn down one of these idol temples. And so they sneak in at night, they burn down 
the, uh, this temple. Lot's father goes in to try to put the fire out. He is killed in that process. And so then Lot and Abraham leave. They abandon Sumer. They abandon the prestige of Sumer. And they go to the land of Canaan. They become nomads. They give up this, this desire for possession of, of property, of worldly goods, of idol worship, and they go and become nomads, living in tents. Um, now here's a little quote. This is from the book of Jubilees. When Abraham reaches the age of 28, he speaks with his father, Terah, about the emptiness of idol worship, pleading with him to worship the God who created heaven and earth. O oh, father, he says, there is not any spirit in these idols, for they are mute, and they are the misleading of the heart. Do not worship them. Worship the God of heaven who sends down rain and dew upon the earth, who makes everything upon the earth and created everything by his word and all life in his presence. Remember back, we went, we went through the creation stories, and this is bringing up these very core truths that we get from the creation stories that was the core of the, of, uh, the worship of the ancient Akkadians. And he says, give up these idols. Let's go back to the worship of the God of heaven who created all these things and gave them to us. But then from the scriptures, we hear God saying this to Abraham, leave your native land and your father's home to a land I will reveal to you. I will bless you. Make your name famous and turn you into a great nation, and you will be a great blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And through you, all the communities of the earth shall bless themselves. So Abraham and Lot do this. They go and become nomads. They travel through into the land of Canaan. They take a couple of side trips to Egypt. Um, there's a lot that goes on. And Lot actually at one point is taken captive by an alliance of five kings. Now I'm not, I've taught these Bibles, this Bible study in Genesis so many times. I keep wanting to do a Bible study, but that's not the purpose of tonight. We're just trying to find the core of Catholic faith and how it grows. But I make, the, I make this, this, talk about this one event because it becomes uh, key in the New Testament, at least one of the characters is, when Lot is taken captive by five uh, alliance, they call them five kings, five tribes, five tribal leaders get together. They attack Lot and his family. They take them captive. And Abraham gets all of his men together, all of his shepherds and, and all the men who work for him. And they go out and they rescue Lot. And when they rescue Lot, they also collect all this other stuff that these, uh, these raiders, these tribal raiders have collected. And so they, they've gotten rich off of this little episode, right? And then on their way back, they run into uh, a man who is the king of Salem, and he's by the name of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. In Hebrew means the king of righteousness. And Salem, of course, relates to Shalom, the Hebrew Shalom, the king of, he's the king of peace and the king of righteousness. Abraham meets this king, Melchizedek, or Melchizedek. He gives him a tithe of all of the spoils of this battle, and Melchizedek blesses him with a meal of bread and wine. 
this is a type of Christ. This is, this is a, a glimpse of what Christ is going to do. Christ is going to be the king of righteousness, the king of peace, and he is going to bless us with his meal of, of bread and wine. So this is a, uh, and I just bring up this one episode because this begins to expand throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, into the Messianic understandings that the Messiah will come as a priest. And the scripture says, in the order of Melchizedek. And every priest, every Catholic priest, to this day, when he is ordained, he is ordained as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So, anyway, not to go into too much detail about that, but there is the understanding that the priesthood that we share is not the same as the priesthood we'll see later when we talk about Moses and Aaron and the beginning of the Jewish priesthood. The priesthood of the Catholic priest is much more ancient. It's a different priesthood. And that's a good thing because I don't really want to be sacrificing bulls on the altar up here. You know, <laughs> that doesn't sound like my kind of priesthood. But this is a much more ancient priesthood, the priesthood of the order of Melchizedek, the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the covenant. Again, we're still talking about the life of Abraham. God promises Abraham that he's going to make him into a great nation. And he makes a covenant with Abraham. Now, we don't have covenants so much in our society. Um, it's, not, it's not just like a legal document. It's much more intense. It's actually a joining of families. And the closest thing we have to that is marriage. We call marriage a covenant. Because when people marry, they join their families together. So it's a very, very permanent. Um, and it's not just a, a document that you live by, but it's, it's, it's an entire change of relationship. So God promises that he is going to give to Abraham an heir through whom all the world will be blessed. Now, Abraham wants a son. But that's not exactly who Jesus is talking about here. Excuse me, what God is talking about to Abraham here. God is talking about Jesus. Christ is the descendant of Abraham through whom all the world is blessed. And God makes a covenant with Abraham to give him this promise that he will bless all of the world through his descendant. Now, in ancient times, when you made a covenant, when two tribal leaders would come together to form a covenant and join their tribes together, join their families together, this is how they would do it. They would take various sacrificial animals and they would cut them in half and they would lay them on the right side and the left side of the path. So you've got this path and you've got animals, halves of animals on both sides. And so, God directs Abraham to take all these sacrificial animals. I think there are five different sacrificial animals. He cuts them in half. He lays them on either side of the path. And what would happen is the two tribal leaders would walk through these animals and they would say words to the effect, if I break this covenant, you can do to me what we did to these animals. Right? So this is, this is a covenant of blood. 
Well, God is making a covenant with Abraham, and Abraham doesn't really know how this is going to work. He takes the animals, he cuts them in half, he lays them beside the path, and then he sits down and waits for God to show up so he can walk through the animals with him. Well, he sits down for a while. Some birds come, you know, trying to eat the animals, and Abraham scares them away. And he sits, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits. And then, of course, what is he going to do? He falls asleep. And in his sleep, he has a dream. And in this dream, God appears as a burning censer. Like we do, we do incense on, on sometimes at the, at the high masses. He comes as a burning censer. And the censer passes through the animals by itself. Abraham doesn't pass through. So God takes upon himself the entire responsibility for the keeping of the covenant. He has taken his responsibility and Abraham's responsibility. This is key to our understanding of what happens to Jesus. Because when mankind broke his covenant with God, it is God who becomes man and who bears the penalty of breaking the covenant. He does not hold man accountable. He becomes man and he alone assumes the responsibility, takes the punishment of the violation of the covenant. Remember the words, this is St. Paul, as he quotes the, the words of communion, the Eucharistic prayer that he prayed in the first century, very much like ours. This is my body, which you do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Christ fulfills the requirements of the covenant by offering himself as sacrifice and creates, establishes a new covenant in his blood that he purchased with his life. We have another episode in Abraham's life. And that is after Isaac, Abraham's natural son, is born, finally. He's 99 years old, I think, when he finally has a son. And... It was the custom in Canaan at the time that the firstborn son had to be sacrificed. This is not going to work. This cannot be. And Abraham seems to be very confused as to what to do at this point. So he, he has this episode, he takes Isaac, and he and Isaac go to Jerusalem. Like in, in Genesis, it's referred to as Mount Moriah, but that's where it is. It's Jerusalem. They go to Jerusalem for, Abraham, for Isaac to be sacrificed to God. But yet, 
before that happens, God instructs Abraham, he does not have to sacrifice Isaac. And this is what God says to Abraham. He says, I myself will provide the sacrifice. And there in a, a thorn bush is a ram, a male, a male lamb with his horns caught in the thorns. Now, when we examine and from the earliest of Christian history, everyone, you know, the church fathers have always seen in this the story of Christ. First place, Isaac rides a mule up the streets of up what is going to become Jerusalem, up Mount Zion, Mount Moriah. He rides a mule up there. He carries the wood of the sacrifice upon his shoulders. They lay it all out. And then in the end, it is not Isaac who is sacrificed, but it is the lamb whose head is wrapped in thorns, who is sacrificed. This puts an end in the patriarchal and eventually the Jewish tradition of sacrificing the firstborn. This continued in most Canaanite religions, that the firstborn would be sacrificed. I have no idea where that comes from, by the way. Um, but this is what it has done. And at this point, Abraham's name is changed. It was Abram before. God changes his name to Abraham and gives him the rite of circumcision, which is a secret, hidden symbol of the covenant. Now, in Christianity, in the, in the Catholic Church, circumcision is replaced by baptism. Baptism is, again, that, that hidden sign of the covenant that we in the church um, have, have followed now from the beginning, given to us by Christ. Just a few things as we go forward in the, um, in the lives of the patriarchs. You know, you, the, the, usually you hear the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, those are the three part patriarchs. I always like to throw Joseph in there. I think Joseph should be counted as one of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And actually, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob don't do a great deal. Jake, but there's an interesting thing that happens in Jacob's life. He goes to a place called Bethel. Bethel means the house of God. He has a dream in which he sees angels ascending and descending on a ladder, up in and out of heaven on a ladder. Do you remember that? Do you sing the song in Sunday school? Yeah, some, you know, we're, not all, we're not all cradle Catholics here. Not, we, guys, people grew up in a Protestant church. We know that song. God, we are climbing Jacob's ladder. Anyway, it's actually angels climbing Jacob's ladder, not us. But anyway, the song is cute. We learned it in Sunday school. But he sees angels ascending and descending. And I only want to talk about that because this, again, is one of the ancient sources of the core of Catholic belief. Angels. We're guarding angels' parish, right? So let's talk about angels. Angels appear in Genesis without any explanation. Everybody is supposed to know who angels are, what they are, right? There's no explanation of how they came into being. They just are there. And that's because... The understanding of angels and actually even the worship of angels existed from 
ancient Acadia and on. It comes ancient Acadian texts we have in which there was believed there were seven guardian spirits who served God. God operated under the name of El. And there were seven guardian spirits who came from God to take care of the earth. These seven guardian spirits are very interesting. Um, one of them is named Misha, Misha El, which means the warrior from on high. I mean, El means God, God's warrior, Misha El. We now know him as Michael. Another one of the seven guardian spirits is Gaber El, who was the governor from on high, the governor of Eden. And we now know him as Gabriel. Or Uriel is the guardian from on high. Uriel, one of the seven uh, archangels. Rav El was the healer from on high. We now know him as Raphael. Rog El is the judge. Sar El is the jailer. And Rem El is the proclaimer. Somehow those last three kind of got lost. In fact, only the first three are actually mentioned in Scripture. Michael, um, Raphael, and Gabriel are the only ones that are mentioned in Scripture. But we have um, Uriel, we have from the writings, some from ancient writings. And then um, what happens is later in the church fathers, because they don't know the names of all seven, the fathers begin to uh, add these, the Yehudel, Yehudiel, the praise of God, Sealtiel, the prayer of God, and Barachiel, the blessings of God. But these ancient understandings of the angels, the spirits that serve God and that care for man, this is something that was known 4,000 B.C., 2,000 years before Abraham. And again, that becomes part of the Catholic faith. So what I, again, what I'm trying to get us to get the image of is that what we have is a faith that is very ancient from the very beginnings of mankind until today. But we keep learning more. We keep expanding. Not that the faith changes, but that we understand more as we go along. And we're going to especially do that when we get into um, some of the, uh, uh, the other aspects of like Moses and Joshua and the destruction of the Canaanites and so much misunderstanding about God that a lot of times people say, well, I've read the Old Testament. Look, God is mean. He kills a lot of people. And no, that was just, you know, that was their misunderstanding. We know who God is by the perfect revelation of God, who is Jesus. And man had to grow into that understanding. So, um, in fact, you, you read some scholars talk about progressive revelation, that God slowly reveals himself. And I don't think that's the issue. It's the issue is that mankind is stupid. And God keeps trying to reveal himself, but it takes us a, a few centuries to catch on. Again, mentioning the four patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Joseph is an interesting character. Did you all study him in Sunday school? I just bring him up. I bring up Joseph for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that he, it's an interesting story. He's sold into slavery in Egypt, and uh, there he is. He's a slave. 
he gets him to, he refuses to sleep with his master's wife, and so he gets thrown in prison. Now, when you read the Bible, you kind of get the impression that's because he, you know, uh, you get confused as to why he's thrown in prison, but of course, it's illegal for a slave to refuse anything that his master asks. And if his master's wife, you know, she's his owner, she wants him to sleep with her, then he has to do it. And he refuses because it's contrary to his, his morality, the moral faith of the patriarchs. And so he's thrown in prison where he stays for three years. And then Pharaoh has a dream. Pharaoh has a dream. And in this dream, he sees uh, seven fat cows followed by seven lean cows. And the lean cows eat the fat cows. <coughs> Pharaoh doesn't understand the dream. And so um, someone who has also had been in prison knew Joseph and says, this guy knows how to interpret dreams. Go get this man. So they got Joseph up and Joseph explains to the Pharaoh that the meaning of the dream is there'll be seven years of plenty. I say seven, actually it's five. Five years of plenty followed by five years of famine. So he says, what you should do, Pharaoh, is uh, put a 20% tax on everybody during the five uh, years of plenty, store all that away, and then you've got plenty to use to provide uh, for the land in the five years of famine. Okay, so that's, that's what he does. I bring this up because of the tremendous amount of archeological evidence of this particular character. We know who the Pharaoh was, we know where, jo where uh, Joseph lived, we've, exca we've uh, excavated his house, um, we've excavated his pyramid. This is interesting, Joseph had a pyramid and he lived in avarice, um, and that was uh, where um, the Hebrews had settled in the land of Goshen. It's actually in the city that, that's there in the land of Goshen is, uh, is Av Avarice. Am I getting that name correctly? Oh, I don't see it in my notes, but I think I've got it correctly. Anyway, um, the Pharaoh who, he, who uh, Joseph worked for was Senusaret III. And we see this because of this amazing event, right? You have all these years of plenty, Pharaoh collects all these taxes, and then he begins selling these taxes to the people in exchange for land. So what we have is, is this, this is the point, this, this one Pharaoh, where kind of you, in Britain, you know, the king of England, but there were all these barons that had a lot of power and he always had to be making alliances with the barons. It was that kind of that situation in Egypt. You had a lot of landowners that had a lot of power. But Sennacherib was able to bring all the power, consolidate all the power, because he was able to buy their land during these years of famine. And then, like I say, Joseph's house has been excavated. Um, and, his, uh, and it's interesting, he has like a... If you look at, at the outlay of, of Joseph's compound, really, you have a, a central house, and then around it you've got like townhouses, look like townhouses, and how many of them are there? There are 11, because he had 11 brothers, right? The 12 patriarchs. And so you have the, this little compound, and then at the other end of the compound is Joseph's pyramid, where he was buried, but there is no mummy there because 
later when we see that Joseph, uh, Israel escapes Egypt and they bring Joseph's mummy with them in back into the promised land. So that's really all I wanted to particularly cover in this period of Abraham to Moses. After this, a new, key, a new Egypt, uh, new, there's a new pharaoh in Egypt. He's a Hyksos. He's not an Egyptian. And the Israelites become um, slaves. Up until then, they were respected by the Egyptians because of love of Joseph. But then um, the Egyptian pharaoh was conquered by the Hyksos king. And you have a period of Hyksos kings in, in Egypt. And this is when the... Um, the Israelites become slaves for 300 years. A lot of times we wonder about waiting on God. We're praying for something. You know, we're asking God to do something. We realize we have to wait for it to happen. Scripture says that the promises of God are inherited through faith and patience. And it's the patience part that's the hardest, isn't it? 300 years they were enslaved, waiting for their Messiah, their Redeemer, who is Moses. And so next week we'll begin, <coughs> we'll progress this story forward from Moses into uh, the law and the period leading up and the prophecies from the law that would lead up to Jesus. And now we are so blessed. One of the things I've always wanted to do in, in this session is to incorporate music, but we just haven't had a cantor here to do this, but tonight we do. And so I want us to think, reflect back on the last several weeks. We talked about the nature of God, God being all in all, God being all that is, is in the universe and beyond, and how God has acted in human history from the furiest early days till now, revealing himself in creation and in history. So I'm going to let Sarah, sing.
sweetly in the trees when I look down from lofty mountain grandeur and hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze then sings my song my Savior God to thee how great thou Thank you. Oh, praise God. I love that song. All right, so now we're going to break for questions. So um, my question, first question is, um, so you said that at the time when Isaac, when God provided the sacrifice and Isaac was not sacrificed, and from that point on, there was no longer any human sacrifice. In the Hebrew Ju Jewish In the Hebrew, tradition. Okay. Mm -hmm. But did Abraham... Where was it? Is he still believing that he would, that he was, was he knowing that this is wrong? Or was he just not wanting to sacrifice his firstborn because that was the promise? Or how, where was Abraham on that? I mean, how did he willingly bring his son? Is it because that's the way it was supposed to be? It's confusing. In, in the Genesis text, you get the impression that um, Abraham believes God is telling him to do this. And he go, he's willing to do it because, actually in the, in the New Testament, it says, they says Abraham, in the book of Hebrews, Abraham believed that God could raise him from the dead. But other, I mean, but the interior thoughts of Abraham, we don't have a lot of, um, of understanding of. But it, it, from, like I say, from the Genesis text, he believed he was supposed to do this. And so he was um, just doing what he thought he, was, he should do. But again, as we talk about progressive understanding, he experienced, his experience on that day gave him the understanding, God does not require this. And that became the understanding of all the patriarchs uh, and the Hebrew people from that day on. So you say progressive understanding, but you, so you did make that comment that people teach that there was a progressive revelation of God, but you think maybe that man was just stupid and didn't understand who God was. <laughs> I did say something like that. Yeah, you I? did. So, um, so what is the difference between 
progressive revelation and man's stupidity and not understanding something unless it was revealed to him. I think man had to, had to learn and grow. A great example of that is how many times in the, in the Old Testament are the prophets telling the people God is not interested in sacrifices, he's interested in obedience. But they kept, off, they kept doing the sacrifices and not being obedient. The re revelation is there, but man is not grasping it. And for whatever reason, I did say stupid, and maybe that was unkind of my, of my race, but, or my species. But still, man grows in understanding over time. But God's revelation seems to be, I mean, God's constantly trying to reveal himself, but man doesn't seem to be grasping it. But how about the times they thought they were obeying God by killing other people? They were, were obeying. They were, they were, they were wrong. They, they had a, a poor understanding of God. And when you understand their own background, especially when the Hebrews come out of Egypt, and, and it's a mixed race, it's, it's a mixed company. It's not just descendants of Abraham. It's, it's all the slaves fled Egypt together. And there's been 300 years under a system where all the gods are very bloodthirsty and the gods are very warlike. And that affects their, it affects their understanding. And one easy question. Um, the, um, were they Jews at this time or Israelites or Hebrews or what were they really called? What were they really called? Um, typically, I call them, um, well, I tell you, that's, that's a very complex question because what they, what they are called changes over time. But certainly, um, they weren't called Jews really until, um, probably until the Davidic kingdom. But typically, scholars refer to Judaism beginning with Moses, with the law the giving of the Torah. Before that, Hebrews is probably the best thing to call them. But St. Paul, even in the New Testament, draws a distinction. He says he is a Hebrew among Hebrews. He doesn't call himself a Jew because in his understanding, a Jew is a member of the tribe of Judah who's in control of Jerusalem. So even as late as St. Paul, there is still conflict between Judah and other tribes, and the other tribes wanted to call themselves Hebrews. So it's, it's, it's a little complicated, but that's it in a nutshell. You're welcome. Anybody else want a microphone? I don't really expect an answer, but... Oh, no, I don't want to Every time that I hear that story, I think of two people. Talk into the mic. I think of two people every time I read that story. The mother, does she know that Abraham was taking his son to sacrificing? And the son, what did he feel about his father wanting to do this? Those are the two things that always hit my brain, and I don't have any answers, and I don't think anybody else does. Well, and, and those, are, those are good questions. It's a good question. I mean, of course, we don't know. Sarah doesn't appear in the story at all. Right. But, but Isaac, he asks Abraham, he asks in that story, he says, 
what are we going to go sacrifice? And Abraham promises God will provide the sacrifice. And it, I don't think at that point he realized just how prophetic that promise was. Right, that's, that's what I'm saying. He lays him there, and I mean, it's like, okay, I don't know. I know, he lays them, and no, so this is, again, we see God giving us this image of the coming of Christ, and, the, and Abraham's son is laid there on the wood, and then, of course, the lamb becomes the sacrifice. So, yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful story. Yeah, Paul. I guess, I don't know if I had a brain lapse throughout my life or what, but uh, I never heard that the Jews had to sacrifice their first son. Um, where does that come from? I've never read that in the scripture. That's a Canaanite custom. Hebrews. Not the Hebrews, a Canaanite custom. And Abraham stops that for the, for the Hebrews on, uh, from Abraham on, they don't do it. Now, I say they don't do it, but actually there's a lot of a lot of places in the Old Testament where it was practiced, um, and God, and through the prophets, continually uh, told them not to do that. But the uh, you, sometimes you see in the uh, scriptures reference of passing your children through the fire. Well, they're, they're sacrificing, they're burning them to death. Um, there's a terrible story of Jephthah who promises to sacrifice the first person he sees after a battle and turns out to be his daughter and he sacrifices his daughter. So it was continued to be practiced among, among the, uh, the Jewish people, but it was always condemned by God. Why did the uh, Jews follow a Canaanite tradition ever, though? Because we, we tend to think of the Canaanites and the Jews and the Philistines all in neat little packages, but it really wasn't that way. There was a lot of intermingling, a lot of intermarriage, a lot of cultural passing back and forth. You know, it's like Kansas and Missouri, you know, sometimes people like to think of Kansas and Missouri as very neat little packages, but we really do go back and forth and exchange stuff. So, uh, yeah. Other questions? Well, I hope you're glad that you came tonight. And, uh, I'm certainly glad that you were here, and I'm glad we're finishing in a more timely fashion, and thank you so much, Sarah, Sarah for sharing music with us tonight. That was wonderful. So let us uh, close our session with the Hail Mary in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.